Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's podcast for Christ Followers Bible Study, we're in the book of Acts, and we're getting near the end of chapter 2. We'll be starting in verse 43, and then we'll be continuing on into, uh, into the next chapter, chapter 3. And as we like to do, we open with a word of prayer. Thanks, Lord, for all the freedoms that you give us here in the United States so that we can still study your word freely and uh, contemplate the words and apply them to our lives. And thank you for this study and, and Mark. And bless this time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hi, Mark. Good evening. It's good to be back with everyone. Uh, for me, at least, this is quite a different view of the book of Acts than any I've ever uh, seen before in, in uh, numerous Bible studies uh, uh, of this particular book. This book is a continuation of the Gospel of Luke. L- Luke is writing to a Gentile audience, Romans and Greeks and so on. And in his gospel, he has emphasized the raw power of the Christ and his lineage as a descendant of David. And uh, in Luke, it was setting the stage for him to uh, take the throne of David and uh, to restore the kingdom of Israel. And the book of Acts, as we're seeing, is the story of the restoration of Israel. And we saw some very important things in chapter 1. Number 1, that Jesus spent 40 days instructing the disciples of the true nature of the kingdom of God. And uh, and the, the disciples understood that this was very important when they asked him, are you going to now restore the kingdom to Israel? Um, And he was, but as we learned in the Gospel of John, that kingdom was not of this world. And that's that's an essential point. And then also in chapter 1, we had a synopsis of the whole book of Acts. Because it said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. And this is exactly the sequence that the narrative follows. And... The reason the latter part of Acts is all about Paul is because he was the apostle sent to the Gentiles. And uh, we so we get Peter in the beginning who focused on the Judeans 
And then we have a little snippet on the Samaritans, which is a follow-up to John 4, which we looked at a few months ago. And then the uttermost part of the earth, that's the whole last part of Acts, which is uh, uh, Paul. And uh, then Jesus ascends, and then they're all waiting there in Jerusalem, and they decide they need to appoint a replacement before for rather <clears throat> uh, Judas Iscariot, who fell from his place. It had, Jesus had already told the apostles that they would be 12 judges judging the 12 tribes of Israel. We're getting ready to restore Israel, and so we have to have the 12. 12 is the perfect number of God's people on earth, and so that 11 had to be made 12 for the kingdom to be restored. So that's, we have Matthias uh, replaced, and his name means gift of God. And uh, so it's very appropriate that God chose Matthias to be the 12th apostle. And then the stage is set, and we come to chapter 2. And this is one of the pivotal events in God's plan to create the perfect bride for his son and the perfect dwelling place for himself on the earth. I mean, the coming of John the Baptist is one, the birth of Jesus is another, but this day of Pentecost is perhaps the most important single event of all in his plan. The Feast of Pentecost was the Feast of First Fruits. There was actually a first fruit of the first fruits in the old law of Moses, and Jesus himself represented that with his resurrection. But now, on the day of Pentecost, 50 days later, we get the first fruits gathered in to the new spiritual Israel. And that's what we studied uh, last time with the 3,000 from all of the nations under the earth or, or known in the earth. Interestingly, this list of nationalities, these were all Judeans in that they practiced the religion of Moses. And they, uh, you know, they considered themselves Judean probably by nationality as well. But they were citizens of these other lands or residents, at least, uh, most of which were part of the Roman Empire. Interestingly enough, in Isaiah 11, we have, I think that's where it is. Yeah. In Isaiah 11, 11, there is a, uh, this same list of nations, almost exactly the same. And this list follows this famous prophecy that our dispensationalist friends claim has not been fulfilled yet, which says there will come forth a shoot out of the uh, root of Jesse, and a branch of his root shall bear fruit, and the spirit of Yahweh will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of fear of Yahweh. His delight shall be in the fear of Yahweh. He shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, but with righteousness will he judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the land, and he will strike the land with a rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked." Righteousness shall be the girdle of his waist, and faithfulness the girdle of his loins. And the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. And there's more about the snakes, poisonous snakes, not hurting them. Uh, none, of, none of these will destroy in all of my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. And it will come to pass in that day that the root of Jesse that stands for an ensign, that's like a flag, 
for the peoples. This is Jesus Christ. Unto him shall the nations seek, and his resting place shall be glorious. And it shall come to pass in that day, and, and this ensign being raised, of course, is Jesus on the cross. This is the flag or standard that is raised for the nations to start rallying. And the day of Pentecost, here in Acts 2, is these nations coming together to the new holy mountain of God, the spiritual Zion, the spiritual Israel. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people that shall remain from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. He will set up an ensign for the nations. He will assemble the outcasts of Israel, and he will gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So does that sound anyone like what we read here in Acts chapter 2? All of these Mm -hmm. scattered Israelites that are scattered all over the known world, the same list, now they are being gathered together into a new Jerusalem. Now, it's, it's really essential to study Acts in the context of these Hebrew prophets. Don Preston, really a knowledgeable man, he's kind of guided me in the study of Acts with some taped lessons that he's done on it. But he was recounting in one of his lessons how he debates dispensationalists every time he gets a chance. One of his debate opponents said that there has never been one prophecy in the Old Testament that has ever been fulfilled spiritually. Now think about that a moment. I know. Hmm. Not one prophecy. Well, Don shot that down very quickly because of the prophecies concerning John the Immerser, John the Baptist, because it says that he will make all the, he will level all the hills, he will make all the roads straight. You remember those prophecies? We read some of those when we were uh, studying mm-hmm. the Gospel of John. And Jesus, in several places, says that Elijah has come, and it is John the Baptist. So we absolutely know that those prophecies were fulfilled in the first century, and they were fulfilled spiritually instead of physically. And so, so this is really the crux. I mean, the, the future of the world hangs on this question. Will our dispensationalist friends see and admit that they are completely wrong. And Chuck has pointed out in numerous times, we don't want any new isms or anything like that. We are, we are going back to the classical interpretation of prophecy, which, which it has been from the first century all the way up to the 1850s and really up until 1908. Every different category of Christian, no matter how they interpret prophecy, whether they were classical premillennialists or whether they were amillennialists or whether they were postmillennialists, they all understood that many, many of the prophecies were to be fulfilled spiritually. They may have differed on when they were going to be fulfilled, but they all understood the typology, which all the Hebrew scriptures are just full of all these types and shadows. You know, I've got a thousand-page textbook from a seminary in Scotland written in the 1850s on the typology of Scripture. It's still the classic work because there has been nothing, nothing written in the English language on typology 
uh, other than probably a few articles in the 1900s, in the 20th century. You have to go back to the 19th century to find all these great works on typology. But this, this had been for 1,800 years. Everybody agreed that these prophecies were going to be fulfilled spiritually. And so this is the crux of the problem. I mean, millions of lives may hang in the balance on whether we can be successful in persuading enough people that they are dead wrong on this thing. They will not accept the concept of a spiritual Israel. They will not accept the concept that any prophecy could have been or will be fulfilled in a spiritual sense. And this is just, it's, it's just a huge tragedy. So, so forgive me for this lengthy uh, review, but I just needed to go back, read this other prophecy, and demonstrate that Israel is being recreated here on the day of Pentecost in a perfect spiritual form. And this is, this is the promised regathering that we just read in Isaiah 11. Last week we read out of Ezekiel 37, the vision of dry bones, uh, or hopefully we did. And, and Hosea, the whole book of Hosea, Micah, Malachi talks about this. All, all of the prophets talked about this. And it was a spiritual kingdom. And, and the Gospel of John, if it teaches one thing throughout, is that the kingdom of God is spiritual in nature. When Jesus is at the well in Samaria with the, with the Samaritan woman, they're not going to worship in Jerusalem or on Mount Gerizim. They're going to worship in spirit and in truth. And, and this spiritual temple is obviously superior to the carnal temple that had been destroyed on Mount Gerizim or the temple that still existed in Jerusalem. So Jesus is saying there will come a time when we're not going to worry about where the temple is because it's going to be a spiritual temple. He tells Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world and and many, many other places in the Gospel of John. So anyway, this this is the review. This is where we're at. Acts 2 is just pivotal. And it's pivotal to demonstrate the spiritual nature of the new creation, the new birth, the new kingdom of Israel that has just been established. And the first fruits have just been brought in on the feast of the first fruits. Every feast of first fruits since Moses had looked forward spiritually to this very day that we just read about here in Acts chapter 2. So forgive me for that long introduction, but now we can, uh, let's uh, start in verse 42 and read to the end of the chapter, please. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. 
All right, thank you. The book of Acts can, uh, another theme that runs through it, we can call the four P's, preaching, power, persecution, and parousia, which is the Greek word for the presence of Christ, or what's mistranslated in our Bibles as the second coming. We'll see this, we'll see these four P's throughout the whole book. They, they are all involved in the restoration of Israel. The preaching, of course, we heard already. Now, power, we're reminded of the wonders and signs that were done through the apostles. They, uh, well, I just read a socialist editorial quoting this, this uh, paragraph showing that the early Christians were communists because they had all things together. But what they really were is they were a family. And we saw this very much at the end of the Gospel of John. How, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. A new family was conceived at the cross and born here on the day of Pentecost. And so they were like a family. I mean, 3,000, that's a pretty large family. They met together probably on Solomon's porch in the Temple Mount uh, when they could. And in between, they were meeting daily in houses and we'll see more examples of this as we continue on in the book but they were a family and they had a lot to learn you have the the core group of 120 who now have to teach everything that they know to the 3,000 new additions to the family so they have to spend as much time as possible together now the parousia remember uh, Peter had just said verse 40 save yourselves from this twisted or perverse generation what was going to happen to the real estate in Jerusalem? It was going to be destroyed. Yeah. So, see, they sold their possessions and goods. And we, we can see a little bit later on that real estate was one of the main possessions that they were selling. Do you see why they would have a particular reason <laughs> to cash out their real estate? It might be <laughs> a little early, but just remember, in just a few years, when Stephen is martyred, they're all going to be scattered out of Jerusalem. And so they they might have lost everything they owned anyway in just a few years. So this is Perusia and persecution. That's tied into this selling. It, it's not the, the need to be communists, but it's rather they needed to keep these people that had come in for the feast of the first fruits. They need to keep them in town longer than they had planned so that they could learn and study before they go back home. And so the people who lived there sold a lot of their things to raise money to help these people that were, you know, had traveled in from all these countries that we uh, talked about a few minutes ago. So, yeah, continuing steadfastly in the temple, breaking bread at home. They ate together, praise God, observed the Lord's Supper together is probably included in this praising God and having favor with all the people. So they were, at this point, again, because of the signs and wonders of the apostles, the people of Jerusalem were not a hostile towards them. Now, the leaders were, but the common people were not. And so in addition to 3,000, they're getting new converts. The new exodus has begun. They've got 40 years to pull Judeans out of the old Israel and get them into the new Israel before catastrophe strikes. And so 
starting off here, we have good success with that. All right, any thoughts on anything? Well, Mark, this is Chuck. Always when we talk about spiritual Israel as opposed to physical Israel, the temptation is for your mind to jump to the present state of Israel because the present state that calls itself Israel borrowed its name from the Bible, just like I was talking to a young man named Daniel who called me the other day, and he was trying to understand this, and I said, well, the state of Israel, they took their name from the Bible just the way your parents took your name from the Bible and gave it to you, but it didn't make you an Israelite that your parents gave you that name, and it doesn't make the state of Israel spiritual Israel that they stole the name from the scriptures. They did it on purpose. They did it for a reason. So it's it's really hard to talk about the restoration of Israel without people's mind going to, oh, my gosh, that is, that's going on right now in physical Israel. It's a natural reaction of people like Daniel to to want to say, well, the restoration of Israel means the physical Israel. So that little bit of semantics is, is just a constant problem for us. And we're constantly having to remind other people when we talk about Israel, we're not talking about physical Israel. We're, we're actually talking about the kingdom, Jesus' kingdom on earth. Is that right? Yes, and and that kingdom has been called over and over the restoration of the throne of David. And our dispensationalist friends, you know, they know that too. But obviously the folks who sent Cyrus Schofield up to write his notes, they knew the Bible. <laughs> and they knew all of this, and they intentionally, you know, set things in action. And others in the Zionist movement have intentionally set things in action to keep the evangelical world totally confused. And they've done a, uh, an amazingly good job of it. Yes, primarily by re-editing their, their Bible in modern times all the way up to 1967 when there already was a state of Israel and so then they could sprinkle that word everywhere with the idea of convincing us that we were actually praying almost to the state of the physical state of Israel. And dispensationalists really do that. They really do virtually place Israel on the throne next to Jesus. Or ahead of him, perhaps. Or ahead, perhaps, right. Yeah, well, do we change God's terminology, or do we call Bible things by Bible things and then, you know, fight the confusion? I think, particularly for the inner circle, it's important that we understand God's terminology, but perhaps use synonyms when we are reasoning with people and only, you know, bring up the specifics of restoring the kingdom of Israel and so on, you know, later. But it is definitely a war of words, semantics, translation, even the tact with which we present our views. All of these are so, so important. And I know I still have a lot to learn in that in that direction. So do we all. Or unlearn. It's sad you know that our um, the title of the paragraph that I just read is called the Fellowship of Believers, and it's also the very thing that's driving us apart right now. Our whole contention in the body of Christ is that they need to know exactly what you've been saying, what we're teaching here. Yeah, that that the three fourths of the Bible, which is or more, which is the Hebrew books of the Bible. They all witness to a certain context for the Greek scriptures 
or the New Testament books. And anyway, there's so many prophecies that demonstrate the spiritual nature of the kingdom. But it was veiled. It's only when you have the two together that you can see the whole picture. So mm -hmm. we, we just need to use it wisely. Well, let's... Uh, Let's move on into chapter 3. Chapter 3 is absolutely amazing. Let's uh, read down through verse 10, please. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer, at 3 in the afternoon. Now, a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, Look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, Silver or gold I do not have, but... What I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. All right, this is, this is just a wonderful story. We see a pattern here, Peter and John going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. This would have been the time in the afternoon when the second lamb of the day was sacrificed at the same time that incense was placed on the golden altar before the Holy of Holies inside the temple. We'll see throughout the book of Acts that the disciples are not acting as if the law of Moses has passed away, that the temple is all passe. In fact, they're going to, Paul is going to observe all kinds of rites and rituals, you know, way late into the 50s. Uh, year 56 or something, uh, here they're still going up to observe the, the prayers in the temple courtyard. So that we've been taught most of our lives that the law of Moses completely passed away at the cross, but that's not entirely accurate. The disciples didn't act that way at all. They continued, the Judean Christians at least, continued to follow the law because Jesus had said not one jot or tittle of the law shall pass away until all is fulfilled. And the next 40 years are going to see everything fulfilled. But during that 40 years, they're going to still be observing the law of Moses. Now, the temple was rebuilt after the Judean remnant came back from Babylon under Zerubbabel. They didn't build a real magnificent structure, but they had the basic form of Solomon's temple, which would have had the priest court, the men's court and a women's court outside of that. And when Herod came along, he'd been working, what, already 46 years or something. He vastly expanded the Temple Mount. And this new area that he built was not 
strictly part of the temple. And so that new area outside the women's court was known as the court of the Gentiles. And they've even found a fragment of a of an engraved plate that was there at the boundary wall between them. And I don't think it was a real high wall or anything. It was just a low a low wall that you could step over. But it uh, said that a Gentile could only enter on penalty of death. Apparently, the gates through this wall were of Corinthian bronze, and they were apparently some of the most magnificent examples of bronze work that had ever existed in the world. They were considered more beautiful and and lovely than the uh, gold gate that separated the men's court from the priest's court. And this is this uh, beautiful gate, apparently, that is being uh, reverenced here. So anybody could walk up to this gate, and you wouldn't have to be ceremonially pure to sit outside the gate. So this beggar, he would have had a hard time going all the way down to the Pula Siloam, immersing himself, and then getting up the monumental uh, staircase like everybody else. So he was probably carried in and sat there at the uh, beautiful gate. Uh, you see, he's, he hasn't entered in. He's asking for alms from those who are entering into the temple. So he sees Peter basically, and John. I'm sorry? Basically, he was giving up on being healed. He was just trying to find... Uh, so he's probably not ceremonially pure, but he can sit there outside the beautiful gate and and hit up all of the. It was the best spot probably in town to beg. I mean, everybody in town mm-hmm. came up there twice a day, the devout ones, and then on feast weekends. I mean, you know, millions of people came right by there. So this was a choice spot, and this is a key because so many people recognized him. And they'd seen him there year after year after year after year. So they absolutely knew that this was not fakery, you know, that he could walk here. Peter and John didn't have any money, but they heal him instantly. Notice that his faith was not a condition of this healing. The power flowed out of Peter just as it used to flow from Jesus when he was in his physical body. Now he's working through his body of disciples, and that same power, the power of the Spirit of God, is flowing right out of Peter. And this guy, I mean, he doesn't hobble up. He can leap up immediately. He leaped up. I mean, this is amazing. This is, this is not like what we see today in the realm of faith healing. This was a miraculous power that enabled him to immediately leap up and praise God. Yeah, he's cleansed too. You know, when, a lot of times when Jesus would heal somebody, he would also say, your sins are forgiven. So I don't know if they said that or not. But he now walked in with them into uh, the temple. And everybody knew who it was and, and everybody there. And this would have been, you know, again, this would have been probably after most of the pilgrims had gone home. So this was primarily the Judeans who lived in the area. They were all filled with wonder and amazement of that which had happened. Heard any any thoughts? All right. Well, let's continue on uh, with the narrative here. This is we're going to break in the middle of the paragraph. Let's read down through 18, please. 11 through 18. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them. Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness 
we had made this man walk. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses to this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. All right. That last verse, I mean, right there it refutes the whole foundation of dispensationalism, and Christian Zionism, that, you know, that God's attempt to set up the kingdom in physical Jerusalem failed in the first century. Peter has just said that the suffering of the Messiah was predicted by the mouth of all the prophets and has been fulfilled exactly as God predicted. That that statement right there destroys the whole foundation of dispensationalism. But let's back up to the beginning. This porch of Solomon was just a phenomenal structure, a big colonnade that ran along the eastern wall of Herod's new temple mount. And this would have been in the court of the women there and along the far eastern edge. If you got up on the roof of the porch of Solomon and looked down, I mean, it was a long, long, long way down into the bottom of the Kidron Brook. What we see today in Jerusalem is just an inkling of of how deep it was in because so much debris was dumped down into the canyon there during the destruction in A.D. 70 and even, you know, more after that. But anyway, this was just a magnificent structure where this takes place. We had already gone through one of the most magnificent gates in the world. And Peter addresses them now as men of Israel. And, And the Judeans called themselves that. But you can just see here Peter is on fire. He knows now that all the prophecies are being fulfilled of the restoration of Israel. So he addresses the crowd as men of Israel. He said, you know, why why should you marvel? You all were here when Jesus was alive and did works just like this. And, you know, we are we've taken his name. We've done this in the name of Christ. The believers are married now to Christ in a sense, and they've taken his name as a bride used to take the name of her husband. All of that, God invented marriage, remember? It doesn't matter what the government or the Democrats or anybody says about marriage. God created marriage with a view towards his ultimate plan of creating the perfect bride for his own son, which has now occurred. So they've done this in his name. The power that Jesus had, you know, they have. And he also reminds them that they were guilty. It's not a very politically correct speech that Peter has just made. He has basically cleared the Romans of guilt. Pilate had determined to release him. You denied him before the face plot. You delivered him up. But 
God raised him up from the dead. You asked for a murderer to be released, and you killed the author of life. Now, isn't that irony? <laughs> yes. The very God who created life, you murdered. <laughs> and you asked for a murderer to be released. Now, that that's irony. But, yeah, but, uh, again, the dispensational don't believe It's like people. a bad riddle. Yeah. <laughs> God knew all this from the beginning. But our dispensation mm-hmm. friends, they just can't see it. They, I guess they've blocked this all out of their Bibles or something. And then, of course, Peter is a witness. And then, you know, his witness is demonstrated by this incredible flow of power that emanates from him. The, the confidence in the name of Christ, uh, it's not necessarily of the man who was lame. It's, it's the absolute confidence that Peter had when he healed him. And it has given him perfect soundness. I mean, this guy wasn't partially healed. He went from being totally incapacitated to being able to leap in an instant. And everyone there knew it because they'd seen him at this gate for years and years and years. So anyway, uh, and Peter's got an ironclad case, but he gives them a way out. In verse 17, he says, I know that you did this in ignorance, as did your rulers. But the things which God foreshowed by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ should suffer, he is thus fulfilled. So that's probably a good place to uh, stop for the week. But I'll, I'll ask first if there's any uh, comments here on anything uh, yes. down to the it's sad to me that all the movies about the passion of Christ ends at the, you know, death and resurrection when they need to see the power of Christ afterwards. And this is where it comes to the forefront here. Yeah, I've never heard of a movie being done out of the book of Acts. I'm yeah, the whole story, not just part of the story, but the whole story, yes. Very good, Leslie. That would be cool. Yeah, Chuck. Did you? I wonder, Mark, if if the reason that the disciples went to the temple was not for the very thing that happened here, that would be the logical place to go to find converts to follow Christ. Would be where the religious people hang out. And uh, I wonder if they were not there to look for the proselytes. That was their task. It seems that all through the New Testament, whenever you hear about the uh, about the disciples, what they did. They always seem to end up going to the temple and uh, preaching there in the courtyard or something. Well, so it's I, true. And, and even uh, remember, Jerusalem first, then Judea, then Samaria, and then the uttermost part of the earth. But yeah. even when Paul's in the uttermost part of the earth, he always starts at the synagogue. So, yeah. yes, there's no doubt about it that part of the reason they're there is because that's where you find devout Judeans who would understand or at least have a great working knowledge of the scriptures. Right, and that should be a lesson to us today that we need to go into our own churches and make changes there. Uh That's the great mission field of America is inside the 50% of the churches that are totally in error as to what they teach. Well, unfortunately, I have to say that it's a lot higher than 50%. Higher than 50%. (laughs) Because even the amillennialist camp, which developed as the only acceptable alternative to dispensationalism, 
I mean, they they lost the whole vision of the reality of the kingdom of God, which had been understood for 1,800 years that the kingdom was here. Now we are it. It's a spiritual kingdom, and we are all, all of us, all believers from every nation are part of it. That was an ironclad belief for 1,800 years, and it got thrown out the window. So, I mean, I, I have to say the number is 85% or higher. And, yes, I, that, you're exactly right. That is the mission field that lies before us. So much uh, hangs on, I mean, it's the power of God working through us as human instruments. And God's power is unlimited, but somehow the believers have have limited the progress of God's truth here the last 100 years. We even that? have a harder job yeah, than we... uh, Peter did because we can't go in and heal anybody. <laughs> I, I, we ought to start a new denomination called Christ Are Us. <laughs> yeah, what, what we have in place of the power of, of miracles is are the Greek scriptures. They didn't have any of the Greek scriptures. They used just the Hebrew scriptures for 40 years. That's what they used to persuade everyone, Judean and Gentile, Samaritan, proselyte. That's because Jesus Christ is in every page. And that whole concept, it can't be bought by the dispensationalists because it, it, it calls for a spiritual fulfillment of all of those prophecies and all those types and shadows. But those types and shadows, that's what these believers were using. That's what, you know, he just alludes to it here. Remember that th- these are greatly summarized lessons. But remember Acts chapter 2, with many other words, he encouraged them to save themselves from this twisted generation. They were using these prophecies and showing how Christ was the complete fulfillment of all of these Hebrew prophets. So what we have now is all the commentary in the Greek books of the Bible, which confirm all of this and demonstrate the validity of it all. And it's just a perfect unity from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation. And these books are just full of the same thing, preaching, power, persecution, and parousia. Every single book in what we call the New Testament is full of those four things. And they all corroborate each other so perfectly well. I mean, for Peter, Second Peter, he says, I'm writing now the second letter. And in both of them, I'm stirring up in your mind that you should remember the words which were spoken before by the prophets, the Hebrew prophets. And, you know, and he said, the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. That's the temple. That's the Judeans. So anyway, it's it's just a marvelous consistency. And that's what we have. This is the power of God. I mean, Jesus Christ is the word and the word is his power. And so that power now is entrusted to us in the form of the complete Bible rather than in the signs and wonders, which were there to demonstrate the imminent judgment and destruction of the Judean nation. Wonderful, Mark. Thank you. Great, Mark. Thank you. That was very enlightening and lively tonight. Very good. We'll look forward to continuing on. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tell a friend about our podcast. And please visit our website, whtt.org. You will find a wealth of information and resources like the latest Pharisee Watch and unheralded news articles. Also, you can order our new video 
Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Even though this video is copyrighted, we don't mind if you copy it as long as you copy all of it. Then you can educate your friends and acquaintances about the dangers of Christian Zionism. Start small, think big, and press on toward the straight gate.